U.S. Navy History arriving. Welcome to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by my laggy XO, Steven. Hey, Steve. Hi. There. You. Oh, no. Okay, I think I have a stable connection again now. Yeah, you just gotta wiggle the w- with the wire. <laughs> and uh, putting some bunny ears on top of my modem and using some tinfoil. In addition to the bunny ears you wear on your head. <laughs> well, the, the onesie is very comfortable to sleep. I'm glad to hear that, Ralphie. So, we are going to be going back to the Western Theater of the American Civil War. We are <clears throat> coughing up phlegm for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I can send you down to the ship surgeon for uh, consumption if you like. All he does is bloodlet. No, thank you. No, no, he recently upgraded the leeches. It's still bloodletting. Just no, with no, a no, different no, no. tool. <laughs> they, they, they suck out the bad humors from your blood. The good humors stay in. Okay. That's what you're here for, right? Yeah, just to encourage you to, you know, go down to the medical ward when we're done recording today. Well, I thought I was here for the bad humor and you were here for the good humor. <laughs> Apparently we're jokesters today. <laughs> so, we are in the area of operations of the Tennessee, Cumberland, and Mississippi rivers. Last week we had gone through the Battle of the Island number 10. And so today we are going through the Battle of Plum Point Bend. That's going to be a quick one. And then the Battle of Memphis. And after that, we will start on the Kentucky, Tennessee, and Northern Mississippi area of operations. So, saying all that, are you ready to get underway? Let's cast off. Alrighty. So, the Battle of Plum Point Bend. This was at Fort Pillow, Tennessee. Remember where all the pillow fights happened? Oh, exactly, yeah. Who can forget that lovely place? Yeah. So this happened after the fall of Island Number 10 and, you know, other Confederate losses to the north and east of Fort Pillow. The naval squadron that was there at uh, Island Number 10, which included the Mound City, the Coronaldetti, the Cincinnati, the Benton, the Pittsburgh, the Cairo, and the St. Louis... They go down the river, and then early in the morning on May 10th of 1862, the Confederate River Defense Fleet surprised them and attacked them. Uh, Their fleet consisted of the General Earl Van Dorn, the General Sterling Price, the General Bragg, the General Sumter, the Little Rebel, the General M. Jefferson, the General M. Jefferson Thompson, the General Lavelle, and the General Beauregard. So apparently the rebels like their generals. But apparently not the little rebel's big brother, Big Rebel? No, Big Rebel was a drunk. Oh, we'll find help for him. Yeah, because, yeah, being a drunk is no fun for the people surrounding him. And uh, what what about the uh, U.S. side? That 
uh, that was the Mound City, the Cordinaletti, the Cincinnati, the Benton, the Pittsburgh, the Cairo, and the St. Louis. Okay, so I'm no math expert, but it sounds like the Confederates had more ships. Yes. Seven on the U.S. side and nine on the Confederate side. So during this battle, the Cincinnati and the Mountain City were rammed. You know, they did the boat jousting. And this made the Union ships move away to shallow water. And this stopped the Confederate ships because the Confederate ships had deeper drafts. So were they deeper drafts because they were ships meant to also operate on the coast or just poor design? They were bigger boats. So the bigger the boat, the deeper the draft. Oh, okay. So since the Confederate boats weren't able to pursue them, the Confederate ships just went away. They were like, okay, I guess. <laughs> Bye. Come back here and fight, you cowards. Well, why don't you come to us? We're happy to fight. We just, you know, right here is very comfy. Never mind, never mind. Go ahead, go away. <laughs> Especially since the Cincinnati and Mound City were very badly damaged. They ended up sinking. Oh. Which means they now had five to nine. Even worse odds. Now, of course, that means the Confederacy were the victors for this battle. But the Union Squadron were able to proceed down the river and attack the Confederate Squadron during the Battle of Memphis because they just let them go. But good news is the Cincinnati and Mound City were later refloated and repaired and put back into service. Well, that's cool. Yeah. So that is the Battle of Plum Point Bend. So an objective victory for the Union, but a tactical victory for the Confederacy. Uh, tactical for the Confederacy. I don't know if it would be a objective victory for the Union. I mean, the... Were they trying to get back to island number 10, or were they just looking to sink ships? They were just looking to sink ships. Oh, okay, then the, yeah, then the Confederacy gets that one. Yeah. Uh, unless their objective was just to stay alive. Then they succeeded. <laughs> so, I told you that was going to be a short one. I mean, let's see, the last one took an hour or so? Yep. Give or take? Uh, so, yeah, th this one is clocking in at about five minutes. <laughs> it's a it's a Stephen victory. <laughs> so that'll bring us to the Battle of Memphis. The first Battle of Memphis, if you want to get technical. And I know you do. This was fought on the Mississippi River, right north of the city of Memphis, June 6, 1862. The strengths of the units involved were on the Union side, five ironclads and two rams, and on the Confederacy, eight rams. If you want, I can go through the boat names, or we can just move on. I mean, I'm happy to go through the boat names, you know, just so people can play uh, boat name bingo. Okay, well, you're going to hear a lot of the same names. <laughs> on the... Uh, Union side is the USS Benton, the USS Louisville, the USS Cordendet. Will they just sink that one so I don't have to pronounce the name anymore or not pronounce it very well? <laughs> the USS Cairo, the USS St. Louis, 
the USS Queen of the West, and the USS Monarch. And on the Confederacy side is the CSS General Beauregard, the CSS General Bragg, the CSS General Sterling Price, the CSS General Earl Von Dorn, the CSS General M. Jeff Thompson, the CSS Colonel Lavelle, the CSS General Sumter, and the CSS Little Rebel. So the defenders, the Confederacy, were closely matched to the Federal forces that were coming at them in raw numbers. There were eight Rebel vessels versus nine Union gunboats and rams. But the fighting qualities were far, far inferior. Each of the Rebel vessels were armed with only one or two guns, and these were light-caliber guns that are not going to be very effective against, you know, armor that they're now in wide usage. So the Rebel Ironclads are purely rams with the naval equivalent of a pea shooter, maybe to take out wooden, you know, merchant ships for prize, not meant to take out military targets. These aren't even ironclads. They do not fit the definition. These were like wooden side wheelers. Oh. Yes. No, they are classified as rams because that is their primary weapon. Oh, so these are the straight-up Civil War triremes rather than, you know, an ironclad trying to plow through something. Yes, and but they had the benefit of not being propelled by oars, but by steam engines. So the Confederate Rams, they had a unique feature of their defense against enemy shot. Their engines and other interior spaces were actually protected by double bulkhead of heavy timbers. And these timbers had a surface of railroad iron. Oh, wow. So that's where their defenses was. So awfully uh, survivable for wooden ships then. Better than no armor at all, yes. They had the timber armor and also iron armor. There was also the get a gap between both of the bulkheads of about 22 inches, and they stuffed that with cotton. The cotton, you know, wasn't really the most important part of it, but this made the public go, that's interesting. We have a new nickname for them. They are called cottonclads. <laughs> so the... Federal forces had the five gunboats. Four of these were semi-officially known as EAD's gunboats because the guy who built them was James Buchanan EADS. But they also had a second semi-official designation as Pook Turtles. Okay, you you have to explain that one. It was the after their designer, guy named Samuel M. Pook, and their strange appearance. The fifth gunboat was the flagship. It was the USS Benton. 
This was also built at the Iad shipyards, but it was a conversion from a boat. So it didn't look like a poop turtle. <laughs> now, each of these boats had between 13 and 16 guns. Okay, so uh, a little more than just one that the opposition have. Yes, a huge difference. Now, the other four vessels that they had were rams, and they didn't have any armament at all, except for a few small arms carried by the officers. <laughs> oh, jeez, now I'm, I'm, I'm just imagining the officers like, hold steady, I'm lining up a shot. This yeah. will be the one to take out the enemy flagship. Oh, I missed. Uh, give me ten minutes to reload. <laughs> so... All of these rams had actually been converted from civilian riverboat vessels. So they all looked different. There there was nothing in common between There was just a hodgepodge of whatever they could scrounge up. So both of these fleets entered into the battle with a bad, bad chain of command. The federal boats were members of the Western Gunboat Flotilla, which was commanded by Flag Officer Charles H. Davis, who reported to Major General Henry W. Halleck, which means that the gunboats were actually part of the Army, but the officers were Navy. So, you know, that's not going to be very good working conditions. No. The Rams were led by a guy named Colonel Charles Ellett, Jr., who reported directly to the Secretary of War, a guy named Edwin M. Stanton. So that means that the Federal Fleet consisted of two different organizations and no common commander outside of Washington. So yeah, the chain of command was FUBAR. Never a good thing to have happen. No. Not even on a good day. So, if you can believe it, the Confederacy was in even worse shape. The cotton-clads were about half of a group of 14 river steamboats that had been seized at New Orleans and converted into rams to defend that city. They were known as the River Defense Fleet. It was split into two when the Confederacy started losing and having their holdings threatened from both the north and from the Gulf of Mexico. Six of them were six of them stayed in the Gulf below, you know, south of New Orleans to face the fleet of David G. Farragut. And the other eight were sent up to Memphis to block the federal fleet that was coming down the river. So the Memphis section was commanded by James E. Montgomery, who in civilian life was a riverboat captain. So that makes sense. I mean, the guy's got experience. That's good. That is a sensible thing to uh, do as a military job, if that was your civilian gig. Yeah. The other boats were also commanded by former civilian riverboat captains. And, you know, they voted and selected Montgomery but they had no military experience, no military training. 
And once they got underway, nobody recognized the chain of command. Montgomery had no say in the matter whatsoever. He could not, you know, order his fleet to do things. Each boat Mm. was pretty much operated independently. Now, the military men that were stationed on those boats, they recognized that this was absolute BS. This is so stupid. But when they brought up their protests to their captains, they were the captains were like, oh, shut up. Go swab the deck. <laughs> and to make matters worse, the captains refused to learn how to handle the guns themselves. They refused to assign crew members to the task. So the gun crews had to be... Com- had to be drawn from the army and they were not integrated into the crews and remained under the command of the army officers that they were drawn from. So there you go with that. So yeah, the command structures are absolute crap. So that's how it looks at the beginning of this. So with the victory that the federal had at Corneth, That means that the railroads that link Memphis with, you know, the eastern part of the Confederacy, it's cut. Which means that Memphis is now starting not to look like it's going to be very important to the Confederacy anymore. So that means that the Confederacy decided to pretty much abandon all the nearby forts and, you know, the city itself. They pretty much just left a small rear guard to make a token resistance to the capture by the Federals. The defense fleet would also have retreated, but they could not get the coal they needed to retreat in Memphis. Oh, no. So they're unable to flee at all, which means they are still there when the U.S. fleet arrives on June 6th. So Montgomery and the his fellow captains, they had a choice, fight or scuttle. So they chose to fight, which any military man would have made that decision, but these guys were civilians. So you know, it's about 50-50, maybe 20-70. The last 10%, you know, is just, Everybody dies? <laughs> no. Debauchery. <laughs> them, you know, slapping each other, giving them high fives, like, we are the best. Oh, crap, that's another fleet. <laughs> but they choose to fight, and they steam out early in the morning to meet the U.S. fleet. So the battle starts with gunfire starting at long range. The... Federal gunboats set up a line of battle across the river and fire their stern guns at the cottonclads coming to get them. Two of the four rams sailed beyond the gunboats and they rammed and, you know, disrupted the movements of the Confederacy. The other rams that they had them misunderstood their orders and they just hung back and didn't even fight at all. But, I mean... I mean, you're talking about 144 guns versus, like, 14 guns. 
Yeah, not amazing odds <laughs> for those 14. <laughs> no, it's not. Awful, in fact, I'd say. Yeah. So because the Rams and gunboats on the U.S. side were not coordinating their movements and the Confederate boats operating independently, this battle was pretty much a melee very quickly. All the witnesses say that the Queen of the West is the boat that drew first blood by ramming the CSS Colonel Lovell. And then she was immediately rammed by a few of the cottonclads that still floated. A guy named Colonel Elliot was wounded by a pistol. He got hit in the knee. And he became the only casualty on the Union side. When he got to the hospital, he contracted measles. And that combined with his wound he passed away from complications of that. Fun fact, measles killed about 5,000 soldiers during the war. I mean, this was before vaccination, so... Yeah. Disease is always a really nasty thing in wartime. Oh, it is. So, at this point, from what we know, the fog of war sets in. (laughs) (laughs) Uh... There are a few eyewitness accounts, but they pretty much disagree in de- in every detail. Pretty much all we know for sure is at the end of the battle, all of the cottonclads except for one were destroyed or captured, and that the Queen of the West, the only, was the only boat on the Union side to be damaged and disabled. The only Confederate boat to escape was the CSS General Earl Van Dorn. And they fled up the Yazoo River, which is just north of Vicksburg. Unfortunately, we don't know what kind of casualties the Confederates had. It's estimated around 180, but there's really... It's just a guess. So what happened is that this battle took about two hours, probably less... And it resulted in the immediate surrender of Memphis to the U.S. by noon. So while we have so many deferring stories, what we can all agree on is the uh, U.S. River Fleet showed up and uh, proceeded to soundly thrash the Confederates. Yes. Because 14 guns is a lot less than 140-some. Mm-hmm. This battle was pretty much the final challenge that the Confederacy was able to put up on the Mississippi River. They now had a clear route all the way down to Vicksburg, which, you know, Farragut's boats were already messing with. Now, because of the poor performance of the fleet, you know, here at Memphis and at the Battle of New Orleans... Yeah, they figured out that naval operations had to be commanded by trained professionals subject to military discipline. Amazing, isn't it? You have to have trained (laughs) military personnel fighting a warship. Yeah, you know, having that kind of uh, experience is pretty damn handy. Yeah. 
So this increase for professionalism also resulted in the elimination of privateering. But at this point in time, privateering was on the way out anyway. For uh, the Civil War specifically or internationally? Internationally. Hmm. Okay. So that is the Battle of Memphis. How are you feeling about that one? Um, I'm feeling you shouldn't bring a ram to a gunfight. No, you shouldn't. You need to bring guns to a gunfight. All right. So now we are going to move on to the Kentucky, Tennessee, and northern Mississippi area of operations. This was between June of 1862 to January of 1863. So the Confederate General Braxton Bragg, he took over for Beauregard on January 27th because Beauregard got sick. So he took command of the 56,000 troops of the Army of the Tennessee, which were in Tupelo, Mississippi. But then he was like, you know, if we went north, that's not going to be practical. That's not going to be good because, you know... Grant's just right there. <laughs> so he goes, Major General Sterling Price and Major General Earl Van Dorn, I want you to distract Grant. And I'm going to take 35,000 men. I'm going to put them on a train and go to Chattanooga. So that's what he does. And he gets there before Buell can. His general plan was to invade Kentucky in a joint operation with Major General Edmund Kirby Smith to cut off Buell's lines of communications, which he could then defeat him and then turn his attention on Grant. Kirby Smith leaves Knoxville on August 14th, and he actually forces the Union to evacuate Cumberland Gap. He defeated them at the Battle of Richmond, which is in Kentucky, and he got to Lexington on August 30th. So there's a bunch more movements. You know, Buell goes from Nashville to Bowling Green, and Smith goes to Lexington just after Bragley. And Bragg, you know, he moves quickly, and he gets his army on to Buell supply lines from Louisville. Okay. Now, Bragg looked at Buell and was like, okay, he outnumbers us. Um, I should have waited for Smith. <laughs> if I could have combined with him, we would have equaled them. But, you know, Smith wasn't there. He actually believed that Bragg could capture Louisville without his help. So Buell's under a lot of pressure from the Confederate government. And like Lincoln's keep telling his guys, be aggressive, be aggressive, be aggressive. We need wins. Yeah. And the guys on the Confederacy are doing the exact same thing. Be aggressive, be aggressive, be aggressive. And he was actually almost relieved of duty because of his hesitation. The actually, actually, the only thing that kept that from happening was that the guy that they wanted to replace him with didn't want the job. <laughs> so as 
Buell comes up to Perryville in Kentucky, he begins to concentrate his army on the Confederate forces there. Bragg was not there initially. He had decided to attend the inauguration ceremony of new governor they were putting in place in Kentucky, in Frankfurt. But on October 8th, fighting begins at Perryville over water. Because, you know, soldiers got to drink. Yeah, yeah, they do. And as the fighting gets worse, Bragg, Bragg's army starts getting some tactical successes against assaults against the Buell's army of the Ohio. That night, Bragg has a realization. That's Buell's entire army. We got to get the hell out of here. <laughs> and he orders a retreat to Harrodsburg. And that is where he is joined by Kirby Smith and his army. Now that he has a combined force, Bragg was like, eh, whatever. I'm not worried <laughs> about it. And Buell, he's like, bye guys, thanks. I'm not coming for you. I don't. It's, it's fine, whatever. So Bragg retreats through the Cumberland Gap and gets back to Moose Freesboro by going through Chattanooga. So while Buell and Bragg were looking at each other and waving and you know blowing kisses or whatnot, the Confederate operations in the northern part of Mississippi were trying to prevent Buell's reinforcements by Grant who was preparing for a campaign in Vicksburg. Halleck then leaves for Washington, and Grant is left without anybody standing between him being in charge of the District of West Tennessee. So on September 14th, Major General Sterling Price, he takes his army to Lookup which is around 20 miles east of Corneth. What he wanted to do was to meet up with Major General Earl Von Dorn and, you know, his army and go after Grant. But Grant sends forces to attack Price's force at Luca. Grant's general there, uh, a guy named Major General William S. Rosencrantz, actually wins a small victory there at the Battle of Lucca, but unfortunately, poor condition of his forces allowed Price to escape from, you know, what the Union attempted to do was which is squish him between two armies and eradicate him. So Price and Van Dorn were sitting there and going, we should join forces. <laughs> What if we, and hear me out, worked together? Yes. And we should take on those Union troops at Corneth. And then when we take them out, we'll go to western or, you know, at least middle Tennessee. So that's when the bat the second battle of Corneth starts. They attacked the Union troops that were fortified there. But they got repelled with uh, serious losses. So they retreat northwest, and Rosencrantz does try to pursue them, but all his men were exhausted, and they just, they were like, dude, we want to, 
because you're like the only guy who wants to pursue the enemy when they're on the retreat. But we need to go bed. We're tired. So now winter starts to set in and the Union replace Buell with Rosencrantz. Rosencrantz gets a promotion and he starts resupplying and training his army in Nashville. Rosencrantz then moves against Bragg just after Christmas. They at least let them, you know, celebrate Christmas. And the Battle of Stones River happens. Bragg actually surprises Rosencrantz with a very big, very powerful assault on New Year's Eve. And they actually succeed in pushing the Union forces to a small perimeter against the Tennessee Tennessee River. I hiccuped and lost my, my place. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're only human. It happens. You're only human. I am the captain. <laughs> now, as they continue to try to assault Rosencrantz's forces, they kept getting beaten back pretty badly. And Bragg was like, you know what? Fine. And he takes his army and goes south, east to Tulua, Homa. So in proportion to the size of the men that took part in this campaign, at Stone River, well, the casualties on at Stone River, which was about 12,000 on each side, so about 24,000 in all. This makes it the bloodiest battle of the war. But at the end of the campaign, Bragg's threat against Kentucky was done, and he pretty much gave control over of Middle Tennessee. All right, so... Every single battle for this campaign is army. So we are not going to go through. We're just going to move on to the Vicksburg campaign. So President Lincoln, he believed that the city of Vicksburg in Mississippi was the key to winning the war. Vicksburg and Port Hudson were the last remaining strongholds that prevented the Union full control of the Mississippi River. This place was situated on high bluffs overlooking a sharp bend in the river called the Gibraltar of the Mississippi. This means that Vicksburg was nearly invulnerable to naval attack. And Admiral David Farragut found this out personally in all of his failed operations in that area. The overall plan was to have Grant move south from Memphis and Banks to move north from Baton Rouge. Now, Banks' advance was slow, and he got bogged down at Port Hudson, so he really wasn't able to give Grant much help. The first campaign was Grant's two-pronged movement. He had William T. Sherman sail down the Mississippi River with 32,000 men, and Grant was to move in parallel with him through with by the Mississippi Railroad with 40,000 men. Grant, he goes 80 miles, but then he gets his supply lines cut by cavalry at Holly Springs, which forced him to fall back. You know, no supplies, no army. 
an army marches on its stomach. Yep. So Sherman reaches the Yazoo River without any support from Grant. And that means that he got repulsed in the Battle of Chickasaw Bayou. So after all this happened, that's when the politicians got involved. And politicians and military operations do not mix. The A guy named Major General John A. McClennard, who was an Illinois politician, he got permission from Lincoln to recruit an army in southern Illinois and to command it on a riverborne expedition, which he pointed right at Vicksburg. He was also able to get Sherman's corps assigned to him, but they left Memphis before McClernand could arrive, so he had to wait. And Sherman came back and McClernand said, you should have been here because these men are now my men. You meanie. <laughs> so he's like, we're going after Vicksburg. So let's start marching. And then all of a sudden, hey, that's Arkansas Post. Let's go take that. We're going to just detour right now. It's like, okay, you're the boss, but this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and, you know, they go do that, and then they resume their advance. Then Grant steps in and says, you know what? This is my army now. Look at me. Look <laughs> at me. I'm the general now. So, yeah, Grant takes command, and McClanner becomes a corps commander. And so for the rest of the winter, Grant tries five separate things to get to the city. He tried moving through places, re-engineering places like rivers, canals, and bayous, and all five failed. Grant explained after all of this that he had expected these setbacks, and he was simply trying to keep his men busy and motivated. You know, busy and motivated, they don't have time to gripe and complain. <laughs> exactly. Someone working hard doesn't have time to think about how crappy their situation might be. Yeah. But, you know, the historians are like, no, that's not true. He really wanted one of them to succeed. He's just trying to save faith. Save face. Someone lying to try and preserve their legacy? Harumph, I say, harumph. Nobody does that. Oh, yeah. Nobody does that. Everything in history by what these guys say is 100% accurate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So we're going to leave it here. And next week we'll come back and finish the Vicksburg campaigns with the second campaign. So we are teamed up with HeroCards.us and... With them, we honor a one of our fallen angels at the end of each episode. So today we are honoring Rear Admiral Rembrandt C. Robinson. His hometown was Clearfield, Pennsylvania. He was assigned to USS Providence GLE-6, Cruiser Destroyer Flotilla 11. His honors include a Distinguished Service Medal with Gold Star, he received a bronze star with gold star and a combat V. 
His date of sacrifice was May 8th, 1972. Killed in action in the Gulf of Tonkin, South China Sea, North Vietnam. He was 47 years old. So Rear Admiral Rembrandt Cecil Rem Robinson served in the Navy for 26 years in three conflicts. World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. He was born in Clearfield, Pennsylvania on October 2nd, 1924 to Isaac and Helen Robinson. He attended Pennsylvania State College at the town of State College before enlisting in the U.S. Naval Reserve on June 5th, 1943. He was appointed as a midshipman, and Robinson attended the Naval Reserve Midshipman School on the USS Prairie State IX-15 and was commissioned as an ensign in the U.S. Naval Reserve on October 26, 1944. While he served in World War II in the Pacific Theater aboard the tank landing ship USS LST-485, Robinson saw extensive combat with the 5th Amphibious Force, including at the Battle of Okinawa in April of 1945. This operation included over 60,000 U.S. forces and was the final island battle before a planned invasion of mainland Japan. And after the war, his ship assisted with the evacuation of refugees fleeing communist forces in China. Following various administrative and strategic planning assignments in 1949, Robinson served as engineering officer aboard the USS English DD-696 and his service on the... English during the Korean War earned him a Bronze Star Medal with Combat V. Robinson's career included appointment as Executive Officer of the USS Walker, DD-517, from November 1954 to July of 1956, and he was the first Commanding Officer of the USS Charles Berry, DE-1035, serving from November 1959 to November 1960. He then took command of destroyer USS Bradford, DD-545, from December 1960 until January 1962. Now, throughout his 26-year naval career, Rembrandt Robinson's capabilities drew the notice of his superiors, and he received early promotion three times. Wow. And then on September 1st, 1970, he was advanced to Rear Admiral which means at the age of 44, he was one of the youngest to achieve a flag officer rank in the history of the United States Navy. During the Vietnam War, Admiral Robinson headed up Secretary of State Henry Kissinger's military staff in 1969. In that role, he helped update plans for the mining of Hip Hong Harbor in North Vietnam. The plans became the basis for Operation Pocket Money, which was a tactic to block the supply of weapons to the enemy combatants through the city of Hanoi. In 1971, Admiral Robinson returned to sea duty from his assignment in Washington, D.C., taking command of the Cruiser Destroyer Flotilla 11 and Task Force 75. In May of 1972, President Richard M. Nixon took Kissinger's advice and ordered the execution of Operation Pocket Money. After receiving the order, Robinson flew by helicopter to his flagship, the USS Providence, CLG-6, to a coordination meeting with Rear Admiral Damon Cooper aboard the aircraft carrier USS Coral Sea, CVA-43. On his return trip to the Providence on the evening of May 8, 1972, one of the two engines on Robinson's helicopter failed. 
they crashed into the side of the ship and overturned into the waters of the Gulf of Tonkin. Admiral Robinson was killed along with his chief of staff, Captain Edmund Taylor, and his operations officer, Commander John Lever. Rear Admiral Rembrandt C. Rem Robinson was laid at rest at Arlington National Cemetery across the Potomac River from Washington, D.C. He is in Section MF, Site 30, TAC 5. He is honored on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial with his name inscribed on Panel 1W, Line 15. Admiral Robinson, thank you. All right, XO, would you kindly take us out? <laughs> Absolutely. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the U.S. Navy History Podcast. If you did, please feel free to leave a comment in the podcast app of choice that you're using. If you'd like to reach out to us directly, our email is usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet at us using the handle at usnhistorypod. We also have a Discord whose link you can find in the show notes if you want to interact more directly with us. We're always happy to talk with the fans. Until next week, we wish you fair winds and following seas. See you later, folks. Goodbye, everybody. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing.